Against Everyone with Connor Abib is a weekly podcast featuring my conversations with countercultural figures and presenting complex philosophical, spiritual, and political ideas in an engaging and accessible way. And it is brought to you completely by Patreon. If you believe that this show and episodes and discussions like this one with Lynn Margulies are important, please do support the show. Go to patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib, C-O-N-N-E-R-H-A-B-I-B. There are show notes there as well for every uh, show, and those are available to all listeners. My work is funded by the associative mutualistic relationship with my listeners. I couldn't do it without you. So please do subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcast platform and support it via patreon.com forward slash Connor Habib today. So this episode uh, is a very special one for me and probably the most personal in a way. It is with biologist and geoscientist Lynn Margulies, who died this week, uh, seven years ago, on November 22nd. This is, I believe, the last recorded conversation with her. Lynn was my main intellectual mentor in life. She was my friend. She was like my second mother. Lynn made a lot of really groundbreaking scientific discovery. She's best known for proving and popularizing that organisms and cells that have nuclei uh, and organelles in those cells have symbiotic origins. In other words, that they originate from symbioses between bacteria uh, and other organisms. She also discovered with James Lovelock uh, that the earth regulates itself quite a bit like an organism, but is not just an organism, particularly through the interactions of bacteria and the non-living aspects of the environment. This is called the Gaia theory or biogeochemistry. She created a whole new theory of evolution of which Lewis Thomas said Darwin was wrong and Lynn Margulies is right. (laughs) That theory is in her book, uh, Acquiring Genomes, with her co-author and son with Carl Sagan, Dorian Sagan. She won just about every science award you could ever win except the Nobel Prize, which she no doubt would have won if she had not died. Um, Because of this conversation, which we recorded in her home in Amherst, Massachusetts, just weeks before a stroke, is filled with such a dizzying array of concepts and names, I feel that I need to front load it with an introduction to her work. Lynn was a true genius, and I say this without exaggeration, she is the most important thinker of the last 50 years. So I'm going to talk a bit about her and start this episode then by reading an essay I wrote summarizing, as if that were possible, her work. If you're familiar with Lynn's work or you just want (laughs) to skip past my voice and hear the conversation, just do skip ahead. Um... That's super easy. Just skip ahead on whatever device you're using. Or you can, of course, listen to this part of the episode after if you want. Um, But I think that this episode, because it's so filled with uh, so much of her work that it might be a little confusing to wade through. I recorded it long before I had a podcast, long before I knew how to have these kinds of recorded conversations with people. And um, I think I would have handled it differently uh, were I to record it today. So this is the next best thing. I'm just going to give you an intro from this essay I wrote, which is in a book called Lynn Margulies, The Life and Legacy of a Scientific Rebel. Um, And you can explore all her stuff in the show notes on Patreon as well. There's links to all kinds of stuff by her and related to her. Um, 
So it's going to be a little bit, you know, this will be, we'll just consider it the first half of the episode, me reading this essay, which I'm adapting as an introduction. But before that, I just want to say of my history with her. Um, I approached Lynn, I was going to University of Massachusetts Amherst for uh, my MFA in creative writing, and I approached her with interest. Um, I knew she was this famous and fascinating scientist, and I really want to take her classes. So I approached her after I started my grad studies, and she tried to dismiss me. I was in the hallway, and she said, what does this have to do with environmental evolution? This is the first thing she ever said to me. And I said, well, I want, I want to take your classes. And she said, oh. And she was thrilled that I was in the humanities and wanted to take science courses. So I studied with her for three years, taking graduate level classes. Um, I was really just thrown in the deep end <laughs> and these seminars with her, as well as working closely with her in independent studies and so forth. So I got a whole organismic and evolutionary biology education in those three years. She became my closest teacher. She took me to science conferences and gave me my most profound educational experiences. I learned a lot about science from her, but also I really just learned a whole new way of thinking, That one that allows me to stand back and see the big picture for her that was Gaia uh, and the Gaia theory, and to lean forward and see the tiniest details, and for her that was the microcosm. This is a move to lean forward and stand back that Lynn really taught me. She was very expressive, she was very funny and caring. She was lustful and sexual and very much a proponent of sexual liberation. So she was really uh, helpful in my thinking there too. She supported me in all my life decisions, including my decision to do sex work later and to write and think and do activism around sex workers' rights. We spent a lot of time together just talking about guys we thought were cute. <laughs> so. Along with Dorian, Lynn also wrote two books on the origins of sex, which I'll be talking about more on the next episode of the show. She knew that the co-mingling of organisms, the relationships, were vital. Um, Lynn once said, in the arithmetic of life, one is always many. In the arithmetic of life, one is always many. So it's there that I'm going to start sharing this essay with you. Like I said, if you want to skip ahead, please do. Um, but either way, uh, thank you for spending this time listening to me uh, talk about and then with my dear departed and absolutely brilliant friend and mentor, Lynn Margulies. In the arithmetic of life, one is always many. Lynn Margulies, biologist and distinguished professor of geosciences, composed a grand and powerful view of the living and the non-living. Integrating the work of obscure Russian scientists, DNA pulled from cell organelles, computer-generated daisies, and the hindguts of termites, her vision was wider in scope and more profound in depth than any other coherent scientific worldview. At the time of her death, on November 22, 2011, it is the vision that remains misunderstood and misconstrued by science. It still is today. <laughs> although it is being adapted more and more. Much of this view came from her uncanny ability to first lean forward and see the smallest inhabitants of the earth, then to hover there, and then leap back at the speed of thought to conceptualize the entire planet, lean forward, then stand back. This inner movement, this scene from soil to space, marked a unique scientific endeavor. This perspective was earned only through walking through diverse areas of study, geology, genetics, biology, chemistry, literature, embryology, paleontology, 
then is a whirlwind, as you'll hear on this episode. Those fields are sometimes separated by an untraversed distance at universities. They're housed in separate buildings, which may as well be different worlds. But in Lynn, they found agreement and discussions with each other. They were reconnected, just as they are intrinsically connected in nature itself. This journey led her to emphasize in all her scientific work two phenomena, the fusing of distinct beings into a single being, symbioses, and the interaction of organisms and their environments to create relational loops that led to regulation of many Earth systems. That's Gaia theory. Taken separately, these concepts have the ability to redefine respectively how we understand organisms and the environment. Taken together, they can redefine our consciousness. After the earth was born, so <laughs> I'm going to go back a bit, give or take a few hundred million years, there were bacteria. Bacteria were here first and they are still with us, comprising a major part of the biosphere. They are unseen with the naked eye. They lack nuclei. For this reason, they're called prokaryotes. So pro means before and carrion means nucleus, prokaryote. They lack nuclei. Their forms were legion, and their metabolisms were and continue to be strange. Where life could exist, it did exist in these tiny forms. One of these forms, thermoplasma, was an amorphous blob. It enjoyed heat and sulfur. The stuff we associate with the devil, this bacterium, was quite fond of. It, it might have been that it was, in association with this bacterium, the spirochete. So if you think of that, uh, curly Q bacteria that creates, or sorry, causes syphilis and Lyme disease in humans. The spirochete, it's a curl of an organism. It's tremulous. It's a crooked line with no front or back. The Margulies studied these strange beings through literature and microscope. From some corner of her intellect, they called to her. The thermoplasmid and spirochete of early Earth were neighbors and, in a sense, enemies. Each one would try when it encountered the other to consume it. This was the sort of popular method of interaction at the time, meet and consume. Yeah, maybe that's familiar to you in your own life. <laughs> Soon enough, the encounter after encounter after encounter between these two kinds of beings led to an unprecedented event. The beings came together to eat each other and decided on a kind of marriage instead. Just what changes happened to cause this friendly ingestion is still unknown, but what is known is that the spirochete didn't digest the thermoplasmid, and the thermoplasmid did not digest the spirochete. As Lim was fond of saying, one plus one equals one. One plus one equals one. There was a union of two resulting in an entirely new being. They were inseparable, literally. The thermoplasmid had a rotor now. It had this spirochete uh, as a rotor, and the spirochete had a, in quotes, I would say a head, a head and a tail. So for the first time ever, beings had direction. Think about that. William Irwin Thompson, who's a great philosopher, a friend of Lynn's, um, examines this emergence in his great book, Coming Into Being. It isn't that spirochetes couldn't pursue a coordinate before, but the asymmetricality of the new combined entity resulted in a new way of being, completely without reference in the history of life at that point. One end, distinct in form, ingested food, and the other did the rowing. Both absorbed the nutrition. So this is a giant step for the evolution of life. So... Think about um, <laughs> a 
consciousness also. Um, direction as being part of consciousness. And this is echoed by all true evolutions in consciousness, the rise of a new way of being, inconceivable to the way that came before. Soon other mergers were taking place, oxygen-breathing bacteria were being incorporated by endosymbiosis into this being. So oxygen was poison, but now it flowed through without, without harming the organism. It's, the mitochondria um, have their own DNA that give us a sign that they were themselves bacteria. And this happened through symbiosis. And now the oxygen that was poison can flow through the organism without harming it. Cyanobacteria are green and photosynthetic. They were incorporated in some of these cells as well. So we can see these symbioses today. So the mitochondria in the cells, the oxygen-breathing bacteria that became the mitochondria, and the chloroplasts in the plants, and that some animals also have, the cyanobacteria led to the chloroplasts. These are ancient partnerships that had never dissolved, which continue to pulse with rhythm and in our existence, and our existence depends upon them. Human cells reflect these unions because we breathe plant-respired oxygen. Lynn was inspired by the work of little-known biologists, and she revealed and proved these mergers for us. At first, this work was totally rejected and scoffed at. It didn't fit the still-dominant neo-Darwinian paradigm. So neo-Darwinism is what tells us that all evolutionary novelty or speciation, the rise of new species, comes from natural selection acting on genes and the gradual accumulation of random genetic mutation. But eventually, these symbioses were accepted because they couldn't be ignored except the spirochete, uh, <laughs> the spirochete part as the rotor, that's still contested, and yet there's so much evidence for it. I'm just going to let you read Lynn's work uh, on your own to see where the evidence lies and how that plays out. What is unquestionable, though, is that bacteria make up the living architecture of bodies, including our own. They evolved into our cells, and they also remain free living in our digestive system. So if you've heard about gut biomes, that comes from a lot of Lynn's work, the popularization of that especially, and Dorian's work. Their spiling remnants are in our gums, in our brains. Our physical selves are universes composed of the movement and biological agreements and interactions of these beings. What does this mean for the individual? What happens when we are simultaneously songs and compositions of notes at once? Lynn once said, Identity is not an object. It is a process with addresses for all the different directions and dimensions in which it moves. Identity is not an object. It is a process with addresses for all the different directions and dimensions in which it moves. And what happens when we are notes and songs and notes? What happens when we shift our perspective and see that our cells are made out of cells? It reminds me of this esoteric statement, as above, so below. Lynn was somewhere in the middle. <laughs> she decided to thoughtfully occupy both positions. Once she said, why does everybody agree that atmospheric oxygen comes from life, but no one speaks about all the other atmospheric gases coming from life? Bacteria created a whole host of these other gases, as Margulies knew well from her work. So she found James Lovelock, 
And they worked on making those processes known. Their collaboration resulted in the Gaia theory, which is a disciplinary symbiosis. Uh, it's the theoretical expression of Margulies's interdisciplinary life and Jim Lovelock's as well. Gaia is not just some loose term. It's the work of relational loops, the push and pull between bacteria, other organisms, and their environment. Clouds, atmospheric gases, the pH and salinity of the ocean and waters, and other earth systems express this dialogue between organisms and the earth. This dialogue is the Gaia theory. Particularly relevant to these relational, and they're often called feedback loops, these relational loops are the smallest living beings, bacteria. In this dialogue, the information yielded from and received by the bacteria in the environment is absolutely crucial to the existence of life on this planet. So all those conditions are created by this kind of conversation. It's a grand podcast, I would say. <laughs> Remove the bacteria and everything else dies. The world becomes Mars or becomes Venus. It's overtaken by harshness or billowing clouds so thick that everything is obscured. No direction-causing spirochetes, no thermoplasma, no respiring green cyanobacteria, no purpose, no breathing, there's no biosphere, for these are the regulators of the biosphere. The science between Gaia, particularly um, that is found in Lovelock's formulation, is complex and detailed. It's not guesswork. But Lovelock came up with an understandable and accessible metaphor in the form of a computer program called Daisy World. Um, and I'm bringing up Lovelock here because he's so important. He's still alive. He's 100. <laughs> and he was Lynn's main collaborator on this, right? So Daisy World, it's not proof of Gaia. Um, what happened is Lovelock and his colleague Andrew Watson devised this program to see if the living environmental factors could theoretically interact without intention. And why did they do that? Because they were rebuffed by many scientists who just couldn't accept it. They thought, oh, well, Gaia's, you know, has to act through some sort of new age earth benevolence for all the creatures on it to work. And Lovelock said, no, I'm not. I don't think that that's true. So he and Andrew Watson developed Daisy World. It's a simulation. Not to prove Gaia, but just to rebuff the critics that everything had to be altruistically happening by some earth goddess to make it happen. So in Daisy World, you see that there are black daisies, which absorb the sun's heat, and white daisies, which reflect the heat. Both flowers grow and produce offspring, and both have the same thresholds for life and growth. They can't grow at a low temperature, and they die at too high a temperature. The black daisies, which absorb heat, grow faster in cooler conditions, since the heat accumulates in their petals, and the white daisies, which reflect the heat, need warmer conditions to produce more offspring and thrive. The sun that shines on Daisy World is dynamic. It grows in luminosity over millions of years. So here's Lynn quoted at length to make clear the results of Daisy World. Without any extraneous assumptions, without sex or evolution, without mystical presuppositions of planetary consciousness, the daisies of Daisy World cool their world despite their warming sun. As the sun increases in luminosity, the black daisies grow, expanding their surface area, absorbing heat and heating up their surroundings. As the black daisies heat up, more of the surrounding land surface, the surface itself warms, permitting even more population growth. The positive feedback continues until daisy growth has so heated the surroundings that the white daisies begin to crowd out the black ones. Being less absorbent and more reflective, the white daisies begin to cool down the planet. 
So despite the ever hotter sun, the planet maintains a long plateau of stable temperatures. Many additional factors have been added to subsequent DAISY models since then, but that little simulation has always displayed a deep relationship between species selection and planetary temperature regulation. The environment after that experiment could no longer, simulation could no longer be seen as this tyrant lording over selection, like there are bad conditions that kill some organisms and other ones that are really fit survive. It was now a co-evolving field. All the organisms on the planet are connected by this vast system of regulation, dynamic regulation. One of Lynn's former students, Greg Hinkle, said, Gaia is just symbiosis seen from space. Nothing 20 kilometers up or down on the Earth escapes the pulse of collectivity. No action or process is untouched by this pulse, by Gaia, even the actions of evolution itself. Lynn's answer to evolution was a logical extension of her work. Evolution happened through symbioses and Gaia. The symbiosis caused evolutionary innovation, and that was readily observable in microorganisms, in large part because of Lynn's work. But neo-Darwinists, like Richard Dawkins, for example, still refused to accept it as a true in the case of multicellular organisms, and so they tried to continue to discredit the theory. Unfortunately for them, unfortunately for us, it's not very simple. Gaia processes are real, they're observable, they're often referred to as biogeochemistry if you want the polite term that scientists will accept. Furthermore, the five kingdoms uh, in Lynn's way of delineating uh, organisms, bacteria, protoctus, fungi, plants, and animals, all of them are touched by symbiosis. The bacteria are the symbionts. The protoctus, which is another name for protozoa, but they're not animals. So that zoo in there, in protozoa, Lynn always would correct people and say protoctus, is a, is a misnomer. They readily display symbiosis. And you can see symbiogenesis, the way that organisms arise in um, new species arise from symbiosis in the lab. So uh, there is an amoeba population that was in a lab accidentally infected with bacteria, and it was observed over long periods of time by the scientist Quan Jion. And soon enough, the infecting bacteria could not be removed from the infected amoeba without killing the organism. So you see this permanent symbiosis took place that was necessary for the organism. Since 99%, 99.9% of all the organisms on the planet are microbial beings, if we're talking about evolution, we have to talk about microbes. This is why Richard Dawkins and people who do zoology, in some ways they don't really know much about evolution. Richard Dawkins himself admitted that in a recent debate with, uh, I'm saying it's recent because it was recent at the time, in a debate with Lynn Margulies at Oxford, um, there was an event called uh, Homage to Darwin, and we talk about it a lot in the episode, and there's links to it in the show notes, so go to the show notes if you want to hear um, these conversations. It's one of many times that Lynn kind of just embarrasses Dawkins uh, <laughs> in, in uh, public. So um, he said, Richard Dawkins said, I, he couldn't claim to know much about life since he knew very little about bacteria. I mean, that's something for him to admit. <laughs> Animals, plants, and fungi readily display symbiotic mergers as well. It's just that, it's not just that all eukaryotic or nucleated cells versus prokaryotic, which have no 
you know, nucleus, as I mentioned before, are the products of symbioses. All animals have symbiotic partners in their guts. So if you remove the symbionts, the bacteria from your gut, animals will die. You'll die. Because of the disparity in size, though, unlike seeing the bacteria and the amoeba, we have trouble thinking of, say, a rabbit or a human as a symbiont with bacteria in it. But it is. Margulies, this time with her son, uh, Dorian Sagan, presents it in this way uh, in their book of strange and otherworldly brilliance called Acquiring Genomes. Everybody should read this book. It's absolutely brilliant. Darwin's question about how species originate may be rephrased as, what is passed from parent to descendant that we detect as evolutionary novelty? A straightforward answer is populations and communities of microbes. I call that book strange and I call it otherworldly because it's a new view of how the world rises to the surface. Um, that book and Microcosmos, also co-authored with Dorian, show us a bacterial view of the world. And bacteria exchange their genes laterally. So what does that mean? That means that they don't pass their genomic information only when they reproduce, although that can also happen, but also through their simple existence, just floating around. Bits of their genomes float in and out of their bodies and into other bacteria. This was and is happening all the time. The web of life is created by such lateral gene transfers and is unbelievably complex and can even be baffling. Along with the many detailed examples of bacterial mergers at varying levels of cellular complexity, the world revealed in acquiring genomes is also a world of mating between distinct phyla, which is a classification just below kingdoms. So creatures of different phyla vary wildly from one another. This phenomena, which should not be possible at all, <laughs> according to scientific orthodoxy, has been shown by the UK scientist Don Williamson, who recently died. Lynn's work has been contested, but she and Williamson uh, collected vast amounts of data and evidence, including live examples demonstrated uh, in the physician and writer Frank Ryan's book, The Mystery of Metamorphosis. Uh, Frank met with Don Williamson, and they looked at this. Many people dismissed Lynn for this large-scale sexual symbiosis through which genomes are transmitted from one totally different being to another, but most of them have not looked deeply into Williamson's work. It's very difficult and dense to understand. I had to have Lynn explain it to me tons of times before I got it, <laughs> but I do think Frank Ryan in his book The Mystery of Metamorphosis does a really good job explaining it. Um, Lynn was working on this project at the time of her death, and it remains to be seen whether or not other scientists will eventually champion Williamson. Uh, like much of Lynn's work, it requires the uncommon ability to question basic assumptions to even understand what's being presented, much less to sort of take it up and work with it. All of Lynn's efforts and ideas those accepted and those still controversial, they led Lynn to sharply criticize the standard neo-Darwinist theory of evolution. So this is something that comes up in the episode a lot, and I hope you really take it in because that version of evolution is a house of cards. 
Now, you might ask, who the hell am I to say that? But <laughs> it's been ex increasingly accepted over time, and it was something Lynn had to fight against again and again and again and again. And now other models of ev evolution that are not just random genetic mutation meets natural selection are coming to the fore and becoming more popularized, even though in mainstream pop science, that's how people think evolution works still. It's not that Lynn didn't understand neo-Darwinism, as some of her neo-Darwinian critics like to claim. She examined natural selection and genetic mutation carefully. And in fact, Gaia theory is an intense examination of natural selection, since Gaia's processes of regulation are the natural selector. So Gaia is the natural selector in no sort of religious way, just that's what it is. The totality of the selections happen on Earth and through the Earth systems and their interactions with bacteria especially. The push and pull of the biota, or the total sum of all organisms, and the inorganic, their weaving and separations and gestures of relationships and loops, they set the framework of regulation for natural selection. So there's no need to be vague about fitness and what the environment selects when you have Gaia in the picture. Instead, there's something to aim for. You can explore Gaia's processes of regulations. Um, via biogeochemistry. But Gaia does not create from the top down alone. So while you have natural selection, which can refine all beings, no new species have been shown to arise from the natural selection plus genetic mutation model. That sounds crazy, but it's just never been demonstrated. The difference between refinement and speciation is one that confounds and confuses neo-Darwinists and the general public all the time, who card out example after example of refinement and adaptation as proof of their theories, not realizing that they're still not indicating true speciation or the, the rise of a new species. Darwin himself did this by using dog breeding as evidence for his theory, and Alfred Russell Wallace, who co-discovered evolution whose view differs from Darwin's in significant ways referred to this as unnatural selection and he was keen to note that it could not represent real evolutionary change so Alfred Russell Wallace is someone that is really worth checking into <laughs> if you've got the time symbiogenesis may not prove to be the beginning and end of evolution but it is a profound contribution to our understanding of what evolution is. It doesn't explain why forms are expressed in the way that they are. Like in other words, why should similar genes, uh, gene sets, genomes express themselves in one creature as feathers and another as spores. These laws of nature remain to be revealed, but they've been pursued in innovative ways um, from long back in history, like Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the person we know as writing Faust, uh, thought of forms as having a blueprint of archetypal reality which bloomed into specific forms. And I find that very compelling, given the people who have followed up on that notion and done work on that. Brian Goodwin, for instance, uh, looked at evolution as a movement of physical and mathematical laws. Um, there's a great book called Evolution in Four Dimensions. There's a lot of work being done there, epigenetics, so forth. What is definite is that the merging of beings in symbiosis is key, and symbiogenesis offers a clearly observable alternative to the consistent but incomplete neo-Darwinian paradigm. The neo-Darwinists were equally critical of Lynn's work as she was of theirs, but they went to say things like, you know, these ad hominem attacks, she's corrupted by fame which I guess meant the slight fame that scientists who aren't Freeman Dyson, you know, <laughs> achieve by, you know, 
because she popularized the endosymbiotic origin of cell organelles. Anyone who knew Lynn knew that that was a total joke and you would just laugh at that kind of accusation. She worked in a small lab with a few dedicated graduate students. She spent tons of time with the students when they didn't understand undergraduate and graduate, including me. I did not have a science background and she would just sit for hours explaining things to me like the fool that I was. The lab was small because she resisted funding from corporate and governmental agencies she thought would damage the integrity of her work. She was a staunch anti-capitalist. And once she dismissed a potential funder for wanting her to do work whose content could not be disclosed to the public. This is a great story. She just hung up on him. If it's not public, it's not science, she said. And she thereby dismissed hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars. The students, such as myself, we were all dedicated because she practiced science for science's sake. And she was fond of quoting quantum physicist and philosopher David Bohm, who said, science is the search for truth, whether we like it or not. The truth was her concern, not popularity, not big money, and certainly not fame. Many Darwinist concerns circle nervously around words like Gaia and cooperation. Um, Lynn didn't like the word cooperation. They they have a point in a way. Um, their concern is that these terms are ripe for religious appropriation, but Lynn was outspoken against that kind of mishandling of her research. So she was also really, as much as she was against the neo-Darwinists, she also really resisted the kind of new agers and self-helpers who wanted to grasp symbiosis as signifying altruism between organisms. Um, and she said, it's not like altruism. Uh, for every symbiont, there's something in it for them. Uh, she would resist the Gaia network, for instance, that new new agey uh, online network, because she says it's not a blanket term. Gaia is not a goddess. It's uh, <laughs> It's got a, a lot of very specific details and scientific proofs that you can point to. So she expressed her solution to this idea that Gaia was an organism by saying Gaia is not merely an organism. Gaia is not merely an organism because people like to say, oh, the earth is, is alive, but it's not merely an organism. The earth is beyond this stale conception. It is more magnificent. It's more active. It's more complex than we can imagine. Gaia is the object and the process. Think about that. That means Gaia houses the volcanoes and every book and every word and every concept on volcanoes ever written. And at the same time, it is those volcanoes. <laughs> they spring up from its body. It's where our greatest loves live, where every human heartbeat has ever rhythmically pulsed. In this new understanding, something can pulse with life and yet be beyond our concepts of living. So if it's pulsing with something and beyond our concept of it, it can change our concepts. If Gaia is conscious, it possesses a consciousness of a different magnitude, probably of a different order altogether. People like Richard Dawkins and his precursor, John Maynard Smith, as well as other misguided people like Jerry Coyne, they can't understand this. The complexity is impossible to incorporate in their linear and reductive understanding where they want to reduce life to just pure, simple machinery that really mirrors just capitalist economics of cost-benefit analysis and that kind of stuff. Part of their failure lies in a misunderstood version of cause and effect as well that plagues science. Like, 
just above that cause and effect level of a billiard ball clanking into another billiard ball, cause and effect starts to change its shape. So what do I say? This change may be real. In other words, it may actually shift in its laws and patterns in nature. It may demand a different sort of thinking. Effectively, it doesn't matter since we need to contend with the shift in our thinking. So what I'm trying to say here is as you go sort of up the ladder uh, of cause and effect, it becomes more difficult to see the systems of cause and effect. And in those systems, actually the pathways of cause and effect and its form and what causes this and causes that starts to change. We see that when we talk about quantum physics and we go down the ladder, but people don't talk about that as also going up the ladder uh, of complexity or or micro to macroscopic. It becomes very complicated. So we should imagine a model when it comes to Gaia um, and Lin's system that's less like cause and effect and more like being manifestation. And I've stolen that term from an anthroposophist, but I think it's a really useful one, being manifestation. That is multiple layers and numerous agents of forces unconsciously conspiring together and their conspiring is so intermingled that is simultaneously cause and effect and beyond both. This is also Wittgensteinian uh, philosophy in a way. For example, the being or the process of Gaia manifests itself as an unstable, constantly correcting level of oceanic salinity. One can't said to be to causing, causing the other. Since the oceanic salinity interacts so deeply with the beings and the environments from which it arises, symbiosis and biological forms demand the same sort of thought. This kind of complexity, it really shames the metaphorical lack of nuance in things like the selfish gene. Neo-Darwinists, who they speak so oftenly and publicly about the erosion of sound scientific thought, I mean, just go to Richard Dawkins' Twitter feed, it's just railing against these stupid imbeciles. But he himself <laughs> has engendered ideas that represent a threat to clear scientific thinking. People like him are the threat to moving science forward and advancing science well and the biggest threat really is who's funding science and how you keep the integrity of science uh, when you are being funded by people with specific interests it's not merely though that dawkins metaphors are incorrect and they are incorrect but his whole idea of evolution is too mystical and i mean that in the pejorative sense too imagined and too metaphorical to be correct so someone like Richard Dawkins, who claims to be an atheist, relies on this whole host of selfish angels within us and the possibility for meme salvation to justify his theory. He substantiates his worldview on a meager past of scientific work. I'm not going to talk about him too much longer, but Lynn, on the other hand, worked constantly and tirelessly in her lab. She was aiming at and incorporating new pursuits, and all these pursuits informed her work. At the time of her death, she, with a handful of her graduate students and a clutch of international scientists as collaborators, was researching cures for Lyme disease and reassessing whether or not syphilis was as treatable as people thought it was. Both those organisms, uh, the Lyme and the syphilis, are, come from spirochetes. Um, which Lynn knew more about than most people on the planet. She was also writing a book about Emily Dickinson, which comes up in the episode. Her, product, her projects had the unsettling side effect of forcing us to re-examine our most cherished presumptions. In other words, she was an investigative light. She was a true materialist whose work produced spiritual effects.
whereas Dawkins is sort of a spiritualist whose work and and the neo-darwinists in general are kind of spiritualists whose work ends up producing um uh these kinds of phony uh material uh shows these concepts are not like neo-darwinism her concepts um are not a mirror image of the economic system that we live in so that's what i said before like this neo-Darwinian view is a lot like, you know, survival of the fittest in the markets and that kind of stuff. It's also not like, as people confusedly think, like uh, Peter Kropotkin's mutual aid. Um, it doesn't exactly work like socialism either. They have no social metaphor. So um, though it leans more towards a kind of socialistic <laughs> thinking, and that's why symbiosis was worked on by a lot of Russian scientists. Maybe we, in the newly and deeply connected world of internet, social media, globalization, and so forth, are witnessing the dissolution of the cult of isolated individuality. If we would stop focusing on just this sort of like tunnel vision of our own social media presence and stand back and see the bigger picture of what's happening, we might see something arising that is a clearer and more nuanced view of individuality and we could ready ourselves for a clearer view of evolution and life. So Lynn said, as I started with, in the arithmetic of life, one is always many. Many often make one, and one, when looked at more closely, can be seen to be composed of many. Being able to move like that from one perspectival state to the next, that is a sort of mental phase transition that's necessary to understand life, to understand evolution, the environment, a lot of things that come up on this show, philosophy, spirituality, politics, all of that. It wasn't always easy to grasp Lynn's thinking or to rise to the challenges of it. It's much easier to dismiss complexity and reduce ourselves to smaller ideas. Now that Lynn is dead and has been dead for a while, it's still our choice to catch up with what she and her life's work set in motion. To do so, we have to cross boundaries and bring together the many fields of life, uh, knowledge, all of that that she embodied. Biologists should talk to physicists, virologists must talk to geologists, cosmologists must talk to microbiologists, scientists must talk to non-scientists, feminists must talk to occultists, socialists must talk to artists, so on and so forth, embodying these new kinds of understanding and new forms of innovation and new forms of life and thought. This motion of meeting and exchanging ideas, if we act with it, will evolve a new ecology in our thinking and in our world. So that's my introduction to Lynn's work. That's where she's led me. Thank you so much for listening to all this time <laughs> uh, to me talking. Um, I hope to be carrying out some of what I learned from Lynn through this show, through these conversations. And now I leave you with my last very long uh, conversation with Lynn, the last time I talked to her, she had had a stroke. She was in a coma. And uh, one of her family members held the phone up to her ear, and I started talking to her. I could hear her breathing. And I said, Lynn, this is the first time I've talked for, you know, like a few sentences without you interrupting me. <laughs> it's true. She's a whirlwind. I love her. And uh, I'm so happy to be able to share her work and her voice with you.
Thank you. You know what Whitehead said about the purpose of life? Do you? No. What is the purpose of life? There are three purposes. One is to live. One is to live um, well. And the other is to live better. <laughs> Best. <laughs> that's, what, that's what the purpose of life is. It's very simple. I love, I love him. So. Oh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> I've become a Whiteheadian philosopher. So... Um, so we'll, let's just get right into this. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, the reoccurring theme in your work is symbiosis, and that's either, you know, symbiosis between bacteria to form complex multicellular beings, or even um, a reader could interpret some of your popular science work as being, as expressing a symbiosis between, um, a sort of biogeochemical symbiosis between bacteria and their environment. I would, reject in Gaia. That. I would reject that. Okay. Go ahead. <laughs> and um, in addition, you're also a critic of the neo-Darwinian theory of the natural selection and the accumulation of random genetic mutations leads to speciation or the appearance of new species. So can you talk about how your work in symbiosis has led you to some of these criticisms? Of my criticisms against them. I, mean, I, I want to make this really clear. Symbiosis is a process that's always between organisms of different species. Always. So you don't have a symbiosis, symbiotic relationship with your father, even if he's still paying your bills, etc. So you have an incredible symbiosis with the microbiome. It's something like 2,500 different kinds of bacteria regularly associated with the human body. And, and you have it with the eyelash mites, these little mites that live mm -hmm. in your eyelashes, even if you took a shower and so on. Those are symbioses. The they're, they're an ecological process, and they're defined as a relationship between organisms of different kinds, differently named as originally, but different kinds, that are in physical association with each other for at least half or more of the life history of at least one of them. So symbiosis is completely a physical contact kind of ecological relationship. Pollen ecology, where the bees pollinate the flowers, that's ecology, and that is an association, and it's a physical association. But it doesn't count as a symbiosis because it's much less of life history of both of the partners. So it has to be a physical, long-term association. Symbiogenesis is the evolutionary process. It's, symbiosis is an ecological thing, but with time, it becomes symbiogenesis. Symbiogenesis is when you can have a partnership at least a partnership, at least two different kinds of organisms, of different kinds of different species, different kinds. And you can see the emergence of something, of some phenomenon of selective advantage. In other words, you can see why the partnership persists in the same, under the same conditions where the individuals that are not associated will not uh, will not survive, for example. And the, be the most famous of all symbioses are the lichens. There's always a photobiont, one that produces the 
food and energy for the other. And there's always a mycobiome, that means a fungus of some kind. And why is that such a famous one? Because you can't study one without the other, because their sizes are so different. The cow is an incredible symbiosis, but you just don't, when you look at the cow, you don't see the, the ciliates and the bacteria and the fungi and the yeast and all that in their room, in their rumen. You just don't see that. So all botanists who've ever studied fungi run into lichens, and all lichens are products of symbiosis, so we're all schwendenerists. But the point is, what is the emergent property? Uh, it's fascinating that fungi are essentially desiccation-resistant, and they're basically terrestrial organisms, whereas the algal component, the so-called phycobiont, all we know is that it's a photosynthetic organism, is an aquatic organism. And the lichen, where are they? They're in shorelines. They're in alternate dry-wet conditions. So under these alternate dry-wet conditions, the lichen survives and propagates I'll tell you about the propagation in a second. But they, 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 drop, they survive and propagate under conditions where neither of the unassociated uh, partners would survive at all. So if, if you take a lichen and you put it in total darkness under uh, and dry it out, for example, in many of them, the, the, the fungus will just crawl out. Hmm. And if you keep them in total continuous light under wet conditions in some of them, the, the algal component will just say goodbye. I mean, it's, condition, it's always conditional. So, and, and, but the lichen has, well, it has what they call ceridia. What are they? They're little bits of the fungus, which is thready. It forms a little ball around the algae, and they, it's a propagule, and they always propagate together. And, and some of them, they come on soil, and the soil's wet, and the fungus, and the... the they, they won't start to grow. The fungus will not start to grow until it has the proper wet, dry, light, dark cycles. So that, there's a very good example. I mean, nobody argues that Schwendener is wrong. Schwendener had the audacity in the 19th century to say that uh, they weren't plants. What do you mean they weren't plants? I mean, they look like plants, they act like plants. But lichens are not plants at all, not in any way. Plants are defined in a completely different way. All lichens have at least these two kind of partners, and most of them have a third and fourth partner too, but they have they have these partners. Anyway, there are about 150,000 of them, some incredible number. But all of them, if you go along the seashore or, or any other place, tree holes, if you, trees, it's very common, the bark of trees, are rocks that, that have any kind of little crevices in them. What's characteristic of all those habitats? Survival under these alternating conditions of wet, dry, light, dark. That's symbiogenesis, when you see new features. Now, the Darwin business. Darwin uh, was not a neo-Darwinist. Of course, that would be anachronistic. <laughs> but he wasn't anywhere near a neo-Darwinist. He was, he was, in fact, a geologist. And he's, 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 he's much more of a geologist than he was a biologist. He went, yeah, anyway, he studied, for example, uh, uh, volcanism, lagoons, coral reefs, and so on. Darwin's main points, which are indisputable, and nobody who studies any life sciences disagrees, that all, his example was elephants, and he showed that how, how the world would be covered, the earth would be covered in so many years with the progeny of a single pair, that's his mm -hmm. But th th there's this, I think Nietzsche might have called it the will to power, but the point is that there's this unstoppable, 
tendency of all life forms under all conditions, slow or fast, to produce more offspring than can be supported by their immediate environment. This is everywhere. Uh, bacteria may divide in 15 minutes, and elephants may take two years of gestation. But on the geological time scale, that's all instantaneous. Mm -hmm. So the, the tendency of organisms to, to, to grow at rates that are unsustainable because you can't, there's not enough food and energy flow, they're not the resources, they'll tend to overgrow their situation, all of them, under all circumstances. Now, since they don't overgrow their circumstances, I mean, they don't overgrow their, their environmental conditions, only some of them persist and reproduce, there's this, what you call now, selection pressure for only certain of them, under those conditions, in those times, in those places, to leave offspring relative to their close associates and conspecifics, members of the same species, not to leave offspring. So there's only a select few that leave offspring that then in the next generation leave offspring. That's natural selection. That's all natural selection is. You know, if you, if you keep flooding the environment, the fungus by itself is going to grow, grow outgrow, and it's, there's natural selection for the fungus in that place in that time, and therefore we're going to have... Uh, we're going to disassociate the symbiosis. Anyway, the issue with neo-Darwinists, I mean, that part everybody agrees. Mm -hmm. The issue with neo-Darwinists is what their claims were the sources of variation and novelty. How did you get new features? How did you... Because they called it from the beginning mutations. Darwin didn't call it mutations. He called it sport. Because he was pigeon fancier and he had a lot of all, all sorts of animals and plants and things mm -hmm. in his life. And he would see that occasionally you'd get a sport that, that is an offspring organism that really differed from its parents and differed in a way that differed from its siblings and differed. That was a sport. Later it was called a mutation. It's, in other words, it's, of course it doesn't count, and Darwin said that very clearly too, if that offspring that's changed, that's different, doesn't itself give rise to offspring that are different. In other words, of all the variation, it's the inherited variation that's important to us. That's the way Darwin put it. The inherited variation that was persisted over generations in, in seeds and frogs and whatever he was looking at. Mm -hmm. So uh, these, uh, anyway, so by the beginning of the 20th century, and I mean, by the, by the time... I mean, Darwin died at the end, of course, I think 1888 or 1882, I never can remember, but at the end of the 1880s, the end of the 19th century. And he did receive Mendel's paper, but he couldn't read German and he couldn't understand it anyway, and a lot of people, nobody could understand it. But in the beginning of the 20th century, three different people in three different environments, some bot, one botanist, the other not, uh, rediscovered Mendel's rules mm -hmm. and Mendel's rules and, and then they reconstructed Mendel because Mendel was an abbot. <laughs> he was connect he wrote to the Pope. And the, Darwin was in the air. Darwin was, was there in the in the session that Darwin Darwin and Wallace talked back to back. Darwin was not there because his daughter had just died and Wallace was in Indonesia. But the people had received these, these papers at the Linnaean Society. And at that session, exactly that session, 
all other papers, five or six of them, were on the fixity of species made by God. <laughs> One man withdrew his paper because he said he read he read the when the Wallace stuff. We, we withdrew it when it was coming time, time to publish. It was a terrible July afternoon, and nobody was there anyway. <laughs> and, and in fact, the notes of the 1858 when the session was, the 1858 session of the Linnaean Society, were that nothing important happened this year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, <laughs> but when you read the titles of the papers, it's, it's all the glory of God through fixity of species made 6,000, you know, just totally Christian right. stuff. Okay. Darwin was saying, and he said it's almost like committing a murder, that there were changes in species through time. Mm-hmm. He had lots of reasons. He was in the... Andes, and he saw organi- marine organisms, marine shells, a whole environment of marine ecology up there in the carbonate rocks of the Andes. He said it must have been seashore. I mean, it's very logical. In fact, he, he, in the Voyage of the Beagle, he talks about microbial mats. He, he, he says, he says that the, the workers on the, it's the coast of Brazil, I think, northeast Brazil, he said these people are working with this colored sand, soil, regolith, we'd call it, you know, dirt, whatever. They're, and they call it the madre de sal, the mother of salt, and the padre de sal, because there's a green layer and a brown layer and all these layers, mm-hmm. and the people are collecting the salt from the evaporators. And he says, he, he wonders about if there's not a whole lot of life we can't see because it's too small. I mean, he, he really did. He mm-hmm. describes a microbial mat very well. So he knows that things have changed. He, he can't explain any. The idea that things have changed in this place, in this time, are very clear to him. And when he says that it's that um, species must have, must have changed through time, he actually writes in a letter, it's like admitting a murder hmm. because it's so much against what everybody around him thinks. You know, um, Mendel was hearing these things. And by 1859, the book was out. It was sold well. Everybody's talking about it. In the 1860s, Mendel, Mendel's, you know, is, you have this image that's in the textbooks of Mendel being a monk in a backwater place called Brno. Well, I mean, that was a direct, it was not that small a place. And he was the abbot. And he was, I mean, in fact, he got so busy that he couldn't do the breeding experiments. And his breeding experiments were, were just very clear. And I, I like to use um, colored flowers instead of what he did because it's easier to understand. Mm-hmm. He took the red flower and the white flower. And these are flowers that had bred true. The red gave rise to red and the white gave rise to white every season. And he, he hybridized them. He took the male of one and the female of the other and he made a cross. And the first generation... All the offspring were red, and so he crossed among the red ones in the next for the next second generation. They all the F two generation, and there would be three red ones. Well, he did the ratios, which is a great innovation. But the point is, he got the white flower was just as white as the original grandparent. Mm-hmm. There was no change at all, and there was no pink. There were there were the th- there were three to one ratio of the reds to the whites, and Mendel said. Don't tell me about evolution. I mean, the, yes, there's mixing, and yes, breeding will bring into new traits, but it's basically a mixture. 
it makes mixture something constant, and the constant factor, and that was the thing that got later called the gene. So by the beginning of the 20th century... But let me just yeah, let me just ask about the traits that Mendel studied, right? Yes. Because you're talking about the flowers, but... That's all he did was plants. But he also studied, um, it was seed length, right? Um, well, that, tall plants and short ones. Right. And so while the flower color um, that you're talking about seems extremely distinct, these other traits that he studied seem a he, little he, less distinct. He, no, he didn't. No, they're completely distinct, and because if they weren't distinct, he wouldn't study them. Mm-hmm. And he got a total of seven, and it turns out, in retrospect, the eighth one was linked to the others because there's seven chromosomes. So, mm-hmm. no, no, no. He, he was. He. I'll tell you what they were. I've seen them. I've seen the plants because when the Portuguese in 2009 in in Lisbon, they did a wonderful museum exhibit on Darwin. I've got a gorgeous picture. I can lend it to you of Darwin. <laughs> By Dane Ness. Dane Ness is the person who does Homo erectus for the museum. She did young Darwin looking at one of his favorite insects on his wrist anyway. For this, <laughs> it, I mean, life size. And in that exhibit, the guy, his name is, I know his name, but anyway, the head of this thing was a professor at the University of Biology and very nice, and he actually was at UMass with Peter Hepworth. This guy went and arranged with his Czech colleagues to get the the exact plants, I mean, descendants of the plants. Mm-hmm. You have wrinkled and smooth seeds, and they're either wrinkled or they're smooth mm-hmm. in the pods. It's basically pea pods, sweet peas. So you have, I, I don't know if I can name all seven of them, but let me just tell you. Wrinkled, smooth, green, yellow, very clear, green or yellow, tall, short plants. And in, it's true that height often is Meristic and not mer- metric. I don't know if you know the difference, but metric is like, like not meristic is like five fingers. Mm-hmm. It's either five or six or four. It, in other words, it's countable and it's very clear. Whereas metric can be just lots of numbers in between. They're not integers. But in these plants, these pea plants, there's tall and tall breeds true. They're short and short breeds true. And when you cross them, you get all tall in the first generation, and you get mm-hmm. three to one ratios in the second generation of Tall to short. That's why we call tall dominant. Okay. The point is that these traits behaved in perfect Mendelian fashion. And when he got to eight, he stopped <laughs> because there was a problem. But so we have, anyway, that, it's that kind of thing. These are very distinct, and it, you might as well have pink flowers. Okay, and, the, and these traits too. and these traits. I just want to be clear so about this. These traits are traits that are not do not vary from environment to environment. With that's these right. That's so right. soil, sun, that's right. water. That's, right. that's, does that's not what the, that was the beautiful. That's why that's Mendel's genius. Okay. I mean, of course, probably with more soil and more nutrients and more water, there was still tall and short ones, and they were all taller. You know, something. I mean, they're, 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 it's not that they're not dependent on the environment. They are, but he kept the environment. You you can you can really keep the environment constant so that you're only looking at the genetics. So it's his controlled environment, basically. Yes. Because yes. with any plant, I mean, you can see, for with a dandelion, for example, I mean, the size can be a huge difference depending. Yeah, on Yeah, but this is stuff. I mean, these were picks. They were chosen of all, and that's the whole thing about all Mendelian genetics, and that's all the thing about the concept of genes mm-hmm. that these things are picked because they are. Strictly inherited according to Mendelian rules. That's why that's why you've got Mendelian rules. But that allows you to infer that there's some factor that's intrinsic. And it, I mean, if you do a cross between people, what's your blood type? O. Minus two. Yeah. O cross O only gives you O. Period. There's no other choice. Yeah. 
whereas A and B can give you lots of things for lots of reasons. But this is, you're not, no, no matter what you eat, no matter how, how bad you are to yourself, <laughs> what you do with your blood and the rest of your body fluids, you're still not going to change your blood type because that those are simple, those are simple Mendelian inheritance rules. Mm. So here we are with the inheritance rules being expended to a lot of different mm. organisms. In fact, Barry Catherine Bateson's grandfather, William Bateson, hmm. was very active in this and was responsible for, I think, the, the idea of genes and dominance and so on of expressing it. Anyway. But we don't have anything yet about speciation. Oh, no, that's right. right. That's right. So I'm going to get to the problem, right. the way I see it. So you're, now you're, you, you, get, you, get, you move to the, of course, all of genetics and evolution has always been extremely English. And it's not it's not uh, anglophone. I mean, what do you mean by that? I mean, it's a French, for example, have never accepted straight Darwinism because they've always had. If you go to the Rue Buffon and you go to the 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 Musée um, d'Histoire Naturelle in Paris, and right along the corner, there's Le Premier Evolutionniste, and it's it's Lamarck. <laughs> And it's true. Is Lamarck, that is a scholar who wrote books and so on. Erasmus Darwin was also an evolutionist, his grandfather. But, but the point is the French have always had room for more than Mendelian genetics. I'm listening to James Watson's book called The Secret of Life DNA. I'm, I'm, I'm reading it basically. It is so remarkable to me because... It, why? Because he's completely right on everything he says, and he says it very clearly about Mendelian genetics and how it becomes molecular genetics and so on. But the only way you succeed in any kind of contribution is to ignore everything that's not directly relevant, and that's exactly what, what Mendel did. So let's look at evolution. Mendel is saying... Don't tell me that there's any change through time. It's a mixing phenomenon that the the, the um, grandfather-parent generation comes out just whatever trait it was, it comes out unblemished, that trait. Then we have Darwin who's telling us, no, there were clearly changes through time, and they're clearly, and he calls it origin of species, it's the only thing he didn't talk about at all. <laughs> but he does, there are clearly changes of the, in the fossil record, and in, in the breeders with so-called artificial selection, which is the same thing, it's natural selection. Um, he saw these pigeons being bred, he saw the dogs being bred. Look at the dogs, they're all the same species. You can always get an offspring. I mean, But that's like, actually a contention. So you were recently awarded the Darwin-Wallace uh, medal, right? Yeah. So, but uh, that was actually a contentious point between Wallace and Darwin. And Wallace said that the dog breeding particularly was unnatural, completely unnatural, and everything that would make a species change would have nothing to do with dog breeding, which implied complete intentionality, complete control, well, and conditions that would never happen no, in nature. my answer to that is that intentionality is with the earliest cells, and that that's just a species and very English sort of way of looking at things. That's what I would say about, about intentionality. Um, there's domestication and farming, Absolutely, in ants, <laughs> you know, in, in, in other words, this idea that it's only in people or it's only because people, it's, anyway, anyone with their eyes open see that there's 
changes through time. And, mm-hmm. and you see even relatively short amounts of time. So what, so what did they do? These this smart asses. That, I would really say that they were from the high table, and I've been there. I know, <laughs> from the uh, senior senior common room, the senior fellows of I think it was mostly Cambridge, but it's probably Oxford too. The R. A. Fisher, who was a mathematician, and he's using the grand activity of algebra. I mean, it's totally simple-minded. He's what he did, and, he, and it's not just Fisher, but it's. Sewell Wright and the the founders of the neo-Darwinist ideas, starting in England. They say, first of all, they're only studying what interests them: mammals and people. So they have mating system, systems. You don't have any uh, offspring that are not products of. Uh, of a single parent, which is if you study most of life, you do have single parent offspring all the time. So they're, so they're talking about mating systems. This is what they do. It's, it's, in my opinion, it's fundamentally a, a, a rationalization. They found that there were a lot of, they, they, they called things that were changed in a heritable way mutants. Mm-hmm. So they made up an algebra that said, all genes have two alternatives, tall, short, yellow, uh, green, and they used a capital Y for yellow, actually for green, the one that's most prevalent, and small Y for yellow. They, they were pairs. They call those pairs alleles. And they, sh- and they made up an arithmetic that says... Uh, what change, there, there are changes that Mendel is right. He, is, he was right. Mendel is right. These things are assorted. But what would involve and the, these things, these factors changing through time? And there's seven or eight th- things. One is you get a new mutation. So the mutation rate would be yellow to green and green to yellow. Those are the only way, you know, going in both directions equally. Mm-hmm. That kind of stuff. We don't know what it is, but it's a mutation. So one is you get new mutations, and they're at random with respect to selection. Well, they are in a way. Yellow and green. The, the, the new sport is not directed by by its presence. So because we'll take that as a, these are all axia. Is that right? Axi- no, axioms? What's the plural of axiom? With an S? I, I think yeah. It's <laughs> yeah. Okay, these are axioms. <laughs> that you can change a gene. First of all, you get the idea that Bedell's factors is determined by genes, and you get this brilliant insight that the only thing in this in biology that acts the way Mendel's factors do are chromosomes, which is no other story. But let's just take the genetics aspect of it. You have new mutations appearing, yeah, it's true. You have breeding systems where some of the organisms breed more frequently, so you have changes in the breeding system, such that the ones that breed more frequently would leave more of their offspring, or with each other more, the assorted versus disassorted. In other words, ones that are alike will tend to breed alike and leave more of their own. You have immigration and emigration. You have the movement in a population, 
of, of the organisms, whatever they are, in and out of that population. You can have a bottleneck where they, they're a founder's effect where the island is populated by the genes that it's populated with. So you have about seven things like this that, that were given as what would change the genes through time, because we have to admit that both of them are right, that Mendel is right about the factors, and that Darwin is right about change through time. And they made up, it's all made up, it's all made up. I mean, I, you have to laugh when you think that, that, the, that the genes are going to be equally going in each direction. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, the, there's already, I mean, it already seems built up on this um, idea, which I, I don't know if you would say that this is made up, but this idea that all traits have some sort of polarity in expression, right? Yeah, like, well, not polarity. Tall, no, they're but, dichotomous, yes. Okay. The so, ones he studied were all dichotomous. Right, but then they extrapolated from that that all traits were somehow represented that way. Yeah, oh yeah, you're absolutely right about that. And, um, and the way genetics is taught is because... When they did have that tra- that ability, that that f- feature, you can predict things. Right. But when they didn't, it's messy, you know. Right. So, um, what happened when I was a student? If you ask what is evolution, and you weren't in a paleontology department or ge- geology department, <laughs> we were taught, and we had to write down that evolution is the change of gene frequencies in natural populations. Change in gene frequencies in natural populations through time. Mm-hmm. So, what was it? What was the gene frequency? You have these dichotomous, you know, big A, little A, and you measured how many had you. Had, you had to have at least two represented. You can't study Mendelism if everything is if all organisms are the same for all the traits that you're studying. You can't. You can't study them, and that's why in that that homage to Gaia. Dawkins kept saying, well, what's only important is the differences. I mean, that's what he's talking about. How much did Darwin, the other, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the, the other thing is um, they started to fool with the environment, and they found that mutations were augmented by X-rays and certain chemicals. Mm-hmm. So that was another... The mutations themselves could change. So what they did is they listed all the things that could change in principle, and they insisted that that's what that's, that would explain everything. Mm-hmm. And one of the, to me, the the most egregious, besides the dichotomy that this this is the possible trait and that's the other possible trait and that's it, which is egregious and completely wrong. But it's not completely wrong. It's a, it applies to seven out of thousands of right. traits in Mendel's piece. But um, the other thing is the idea when they. Um, idealized the factors uh, as big Y, little Y, like Mm -hmm. I said, that there was something intrinsic that determined that you could study, for example, um, to make it really clear, the three to one ratio is coming from, well, the, the one that's infrequent, so-called recessive, like the the um, yellow piece instead of the green ones. And I've got a better one. Cause I, I, that's why I like the white one rather than the pink one, because it's very clear. The, 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 the white ones, crossed amongst themselves, never gave anything but white flowers. Mm-hmm. But the red ones gave two kinds, ones that bred true for red and 
and twice as many that also gave rise to white. And from this, we deduced that there were two factors in every organism, and this was completely right. So you've got these, these great predictability that you never had anywhere in science at all. So the concept was that this is not just right, but enough. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the assumption I'm getting at that is egregious is that if you have the factor, one copy or two copies of the factor, that that factor entirely determines the phenotype or what you see. In other words, there are no mm-hmm. issues with genotype-phenotype relationship because if you have the gene, it may be different if you have one copy of an alternate gene or two copies. But it follows 100% from that what you're going to look like, whether you're red or white. Mm -hmm. This ignores a field that's going crazy today called genotype-phenotype relations. I don't know what it's called, epigenetics and stuff. So it's it's the epitome of reductionism, this Mm -hmm. kind of view. And it just happens to be wrong for most things. And also, I mean... it raises a question for me when you say it's reductionism into um, these seven traits that can be determined as dichotomous and also what you've just said. I don't really understand how natural selection could only work on one trait at, to produce one trait at a time. That's, something that's an to me assumption. That's been it's one of their, their, their very bad assumptions. How could it not... How, it how has about, to work on an organism. So, right, and... A whole organism. And, and in fact, an organism in groups, too. And they, they, they deny that. It's too. funny, because when you said populations before, I thought to myself, do they even say populations anymore? Is the word populations even used? Like, oh, yeah. Because you're responding oh, to yeah. the answer. Because um, everything's just been brought down into this level of the gene. No, right? no. The, 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 they sprung off of the group, which I find the most, I find it very technical, called population genetics, mm. which is, oh, it's done some things about reconstructing the history of migration and people and stuff like that. And maybe detection of diseases too. But that is, the assumption in the population genetics is that the members of the population are individual and they have no influence on each other. That's the first thing that's obviously mm-hmm. crazy. So what they have is a, a religion there. It really is. What is a religion? A religion is something that you believe without any evidence. <laughs> you take on faith. And they've drummed this into people. They've just drummed this into people and so that you've got a Jerry Coyne type reaction to people who are brought up with this. So the only way speciation can work is to have genes that are relevant to the speciation process. Well, you do. You have genes that are relevant to the fact that they don't breed. And to mammologists... Speciation means members of the same species now become reproductively isolated because the breeding doesn't work. Mm-hmm. So it's taking processes that are cr- incredibly complex and and forcing them into this procrustean bed mm-hmm. of yes-no dichotomy of this gene for this and the gene for that. There's right. no gene for anything anyway. So so anyway, so this is what the summary. It's very simple. I was just a curious student asking all the time, give me any example. I don't care if it's in the field, in the laboratory, in cages, you know, in, or in, in uh, the fossil record. Mm-hmm. I want one case where one, you, can, you can actually document the passage from one species to another. 
And it was very interesting that the best work is the Galapagos finches. That's true. They've got every year for 30 years. These people are wonderful scientists. Mm -hmm. They climb up this volcanic, by these people, I mean, Rosemary and Peter Grant from Princeton, or really from England. And they have seen definitely natural selection. They've seen that when there was a very droughty year and, the, and, there, was, and there was not good sun, that the trees that make, made very big seeds didn't have any offspring, and the, the birds that were dependent on the big seeds with the big nutcrackers, they actually went extinct on Daphne Island. So yes, they've seen extinctions, they've seen big changes, big rainfall, lots of little seeds. They've seen big changes in the populations and to extinction. Of course, they've never seen speciation. Right. They don't know what it is. I mean, they, they, and I only buy speciation when the naturalist tells you that this is one species and the next one is another species. I mean, right. I, I don't expect. Which is really funny because when when <coughs> I listened to your talk at Oxford and you were there with Dawkins and you were there with um, what two others, right? Yeah. And sure. um, and when you said this. Something similar to this, they began to, someone started to say, well, well, what are the naturalists saying? As if what the naturalists had said to identify what was a species and what wasn't was now suddenly invalid in the face of this. So they, that aspect had to be thrown out too. But beyond that, I don't know. Okay. But beyond that I mean, when you, <laughs> it, it was really funny to me because what, what you're accusing, not accusing, but what you're showing them as doing is something that they constantly accuse you of doing. Which so let me what? let me sort of back up a little bit and say, so when you brought up examples, right, um, about instances of symbiosis, because symbiogenesis, you, yes, of symbiogenesis, when. When you say, show me examples, and they say, well, why don't you show us examples, right? So then you say, okay, well, um, there are these slugs that have, at some point, formed a permanent symbiosis with, I'm not sure what the exact organism The diatom, okay. and with the, uh, the green alga, and with nothing. Right. So, so three different species in the same genus. They're all totally related to Right. So you show this clear example of, um, of an instance where it must have happened, yeah. right? And... Then you also say, well, there are many examples, right? Uh, so first they jumped on you as saying that you were extrapolating everything from that one example. But of course there are many examples. First they asked you for an example. Then you then gave one. An and then anecdote. they said you were a general. Exactly. So then Richard Dawkins says, we don't want another anecdote, right? Yes. As you're about to present more evidence. And then goes on to tell a story uh, using an analogy of fire and one flame jumping to another thing. And I thought, well, what kind of anecdote are, are we looking for here? What you've presented is evidence. It's biology. And then there's an analogic like anecdote, right, which yes. is what Dawkins presented. And so it seems like that, that, that neo-Darwinism is filled with anecdotes but has sort of a, a scarcity of, of actual evidence. So then... <laughs> The response people give is, so why would you want to have a whole new theory when natural selection with sufficient. Yeah, it's sufficient. And you say, well, look at the evidence. And then they say, well, those are special and rare examples. And you say, here are more. And then they say, we don't want another anecdote. So there's an eventual point where they literally just will not listen. They don't want to hear it at all. And they don't want to look at it. So 
they have a really consistent, what seems to be a very consistent theory, but not physical evidence. So what is wrong? Why are they not accepting your evidence, which is observable, which has been seen, and it at least very strongly inferred by things that have been seen in the lab. Um, And... Outside it's the lab in nature. It's been seen in the lab with Kong Jia, yes. but it's not even, it doesn't count because it's not mammals and it's not sexual. Right, and that's what they constantly say is, well, these are, this is a special exception, yeah. right? So why, why do you, what do you think is well, happening I mean, with them? I mean, What's their resistance? It's so interesting. Niles Eldridge was always interested in fossils, and he could see that there's a lot of different fossils in the fossil record. And this, this, so he went to, to, the Bahamas or East Africa, I can't remember. He's really good at trilobites. And the closer he... And what he saw was the same thing that people in the Daphne Island are seeing. They're seeing variation within the species. And, and it's quite significant, but it's always variation within a range that's measurable. And then, boom, next stratum, a new species. Mm-hmm. And they call that, I'm not sure the word, the, the word is good, punctuated equilibrium. But the discontinuity aspect of the fossil record, I've always felt, is much more consistent with symbiogenesis than it is with the gradual accumulation of random mutations. <laughs> so what is the answer? It's why, why do people who are sincere and wonderful Catholics believe the three equals one? The, the, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Because their parents were that way. Because they... I've been taught that way because it represents a security. I mean, it's got to do with people's, in the academic world, it's worse. And Fleck, you've you read, I think. Fleck, have you read Fleck? Mm-hmm. Oh, it's fantastic. Fleck wrote the book. He was very young when he saw this phenomenon. The Genesis and Development of a Scientific Fact. Mm-hmm. Kuhn read it because mm-hmm. it was written in German. Mm-hmm. It's, it, it's English translation is really good. One of the great sociologists did it. Anyway, what did he say? He said, when fields are really close to each other, that's where the, the block is the strongest. In other words, people in the same academic field with a name, biochemists became molecular biologists, natural historians became paleontologists or geneticists, right? They changed the name. The name refers to the thought collective. And the people in the Thought Collective have the same Deccan style, the same style of thinking. And when they reject papers and they reject concepts like this, they're not, they're rejecting because they can't understand it, because it doesn't fit their thought style. They can't even look at a paper and review it that doesn't fit their own thought style. So this is a phenomenon, it can be in religion, it can be sports, it can be in anything. It's in anything. It's, it's, It's in anything. So and that's how, the real problem. They belong to a different thought style. So, but then, you know, you have this problem of science and many scientists claiming science to be sort of clean of this issue. Yeah, well, they're so how delusionary. You, the, so yeah. how, how do you keep it clean? I mean, how do you... Well, there's this concept that almost all scientists have that there really is an objective reality. But there's no evidence whatsoever because everything observed is through an observer and that observer tends to be a person. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it's colored by the, the historical and familial and all these things. And there's there's really discontinuities. And it's so amusing to me that the most obvious and crazy case in all of biology 
I have a, a little um, swimming alga. It's photosynthesis. A little swimming alga, very pretty. You can always tell what it is. Ochromonas danica. Everybody agrees it was 16th, 17th century named by common people. The botanists will tell you that it's in the plant kingdom. And the zoologists will tell you in the animal kingdom. So that's, that's the first thing. The botanists will call it <laughs> chrysophyte, which stands for golden yellow because that's the color. And the zoologists will tell you that it's phytomastigophora, which means a plant like that swims. Mastigophora means with a, with a tail. Uh, and we go on to every level of classification, from kingdom to phylum to class to genus to species, <laughs> and when we get to the genus to the species, it's the same organism. <laughs> but the botanists are phycologists or algologists or lower plant experts, and they are analyzing according to their scheme. And the zoologists are calling them protozoa, the lower animals. And how do they maintain this level of, I mean, can you imagine a corn plant being both in the animal and the plant kingdom? I mean, <laughs> if they could see the organism, really. It's, it's, how do they manage this? By not going to the same meetings, by, not, by having different journals, and by keeping their thoughts separate. So everything you could say in science is that way. So there, that was actually one of, um, it's something that Goethe expressed very often. He has a great essay about the subject and object in science. And he says, you know, we have to work, as we observe phenomena, first we have to understand that it's, we're interacting with it. Of course. But we're also interacting with our thoughts. So the first thing that we need to do is, be, is think about our thinking as we're thinking about the thing we're approaching. And suddenly all sorts of things will pop up. That doesn't mean that those don't relate to our object of study. In fact, those there things can no reveal something study. very... Yeah, but there's no objectivity, real objectivity. There's no such thing. Well, <laughs> his idea was that if we begin to think about the thinking and see everything that starts to pop up on our emotive response and everything... Yes, and not pretend that it's not there, first yeah, of all, which the is the, the, the biggest problem. N not to sever ourselves from that. We'll learn something about... Uh, whatever it is we're studying, but then also conclusions will begin to arise on their own and we'll be able to distinguish them from our from our normal thoughts in a certain way. Well, from our, so, our prejudice going in, because you have this... But I want to ask you, does, does, does Steiner study Goethe especially? Yes. Oh. Yeah, in, fa in fact, almost... That was, that was his first big break, and his first sort of break in science was he was asked to edit um, and repress all of Goethe's scientific studies and write essays on them. What do you mean repress them? Um, well, they were, he had a journal that he was working on, and he was, he was writing on them. He was asked to edit and What's present. What's repress mean, though, in that? Is that a word for that? Oh, oh I don't, I'm sorry. Not repress. Republish, I should say. Oh, oh, I yeah. Yeah. Repress, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so anyway, there's a huge influence of Goethe's biological thinking on Steiner. Yeah, it's, it's in, in fact, when I went to the Nature Institute um, yeah, in, in New York, which is a Goethean Science Institute, yeah. I had no idea that I was getting into Steiner, but of course... But you knew you were getting into Goethe, but exactly, you read Goethe. Goethe. Yeah, but Steiner was just all over it, right? So yeah. there, that's, and that's a tenet of anthroposophy, which is that we must think about our own thinking as we're trying to apprehend oh, sure. the, what we call the external world. Well, I think there's a statement in, in the function of reason, that book by... 
it's 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 uh, by Whitehead, and it's really it's really not about the function of reason. It's really about well, they talk about he talks about it. There's this statement that says non-human animals are claimed not to have purpose, to act at random. And he said, I think that those who claim that non-human animals don't have purpose need to be studied <laughs> for their complete ignorance of what's going on, around, denial. Of, you know. He mm-hmm. said, they, they, they're so peculiar in that, in that um, belief for which there's no evidence at all. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, uh, which uh, it's one of the things I like very much about that book. It's very blunt. Yeah. yeah. But that uh, that's another sort of symptom of trying to make things um, enemies where we could just merely make a distinction. What's the distinction in purpose between non-human animals and human yeah. animals rather than simply saying one has purpose and the well, other doesn't? It, Lovelock thinks that dichotomization, which is so intrinsic to people's way of doing things, that it really comes from being threatened by the environment to know you have a plant there, you have a mushroom there, you have a, a fierce animal there, to know whether it's edible, it's going to eat you, whether you have to run, whether you can take it home for dinner. You mm-hmm. have to know these things. You have to know your natural environment or you're not going to live. And mm-hmm. so you've got to make snap, snap judgments based on signs and symbols, and people are really good at that. And But that's also, I mean, if, if you would explore that more, you would begin to produce a better sort of result in response to your environment because you would begin to, if you think about your thinking, think yeah, about your course. response, you would create a more complex sort of matrix between yeah. the well, you, environment and yourself. You have and nuance, and this, this, this is almost by definition, it's platonic. The, the traditions of genetics, classical genetics, are platonic. They're not nuanced at all. They're not Goethean at all. <laughs> And what happens is people get socialized in them. Yeah. So, anyway. It just seems so obvious to me. I mean, and it seems obvious because I had to work to make it obvious. Yeah. But it seems obvious to me that this um, natural selection, random mutation thing just cannot be correct. And I, I'm, I, I think it's created this huge problem where not only is natural selection the only form of evolution now, natural selection, random mutation, evolution now, right? But if you disagree with that... You're also considered to be unscientific. You don't like science. You believe six thousand years yeah. they've only been yeah. here for six thousand. Those 000 are the two places. Yeah. So how how did how did that evolution that model of evolution come, become a stand-in for all of scientific thinking? Well, okay, let me just say again: we have to distinguish the it, the random mutation as the source of innovation is, in my opinion, completely undocumented. Mm-hmm. Whereas the tendency of organisms properly associated with their environments at a given time, leaving more offspring, the natural selection part right. of it is, is, is not a contention at all. Mm-hmm. So you have to ask. And I think that uh, in the Fleck book, Robert Merton, who is, he died recently, but maybe not so recently, but he was the great sociologist who, who worked on this book with Tadeus, I can't remember who, who was the translator from German. And they have a fantastic afterword. Afterward. And I and I think the, their analysis is completely correct. Um, the stages are in all scientific discovery and all scientific work, you begin with esoterica. You begin with two guys in a lab or just one guy in nature 
I mean, it, it, there's no science, anything. That, there isn't a science. And, and, and Flex says this. There's no scientific fact. A fact has to be developed. And it's a sociological phenomenon, which he did. When he was 22 and he was a micro, you know, he's a medical microbiologist and he saw this stuff happening. Anyway, so the first stage always is esoterica. And then it has to go a fact, a potential fact. And his fact was so cute. It was uh, the Wasserman positive test for syphilis. He, that was his... That's why the book fascinated me so much, because that was his, his example. Members of the same thought style belong to the same thought collective, and you belong to it in contemporary times. As a way of getting out of it also is historical, because you read people in the same field that are old, or the predecessors, and that's another way that you can't you can't have the slightest idea what they're talking about, even though they're using the same words, because it's changed through time. So that anyway, so you get, the fundamental unit is the thought style shared by the thought collective. And I can tell you, for example, what is Vagis Proskauer and Acid Fast? What are those things? <laughs> well, that's because you don't belong to the microbiology thought right. style. Okay. So, I mean. The, they're key words. Words become battle cries. That's what Flex said. Words become battle cries. And to see which team you're on. Which, anyway. Hmm. But the, the the commentator said, actually Fleck had said this, but he, they said it really clearly. So all science starts as esoteric. And I'm answering your question, too. I just have to get to it. Um, and how does it go to Vadi Makeham? You know what Vadi Makeham is? No. Oh, you do. You do. You do. Vadi Makeham. It's Latin for... Go, ir, va, you know. What is it in French? You know, it's go, aller, je vais. Okay, <laughs> okay. Vadi, make them with me. So it goes with me. A vadi make them is basically a book or a series of social documents. For example, the Handbook of Chemistry and Physics, Berge's Manual for the Bacteria, the Bible, or the, um, in science, it's, uh, it's these great reference books, right, that, that, that standardize the knowledge of the field, right? It can be a big microbiology book, but that's what Vadi Makeham is. Hmm. To go from esoterica, which it always starts with, to Vadi Makeham, what has to be done? You have to give talks. You have to influence people. You have to write articles. You have to have a lot of references. There's a whole lot of very hard activities that go from your little discovery in the laboratory, you know, of the background radiation in the universe and, and having it accepted. So the second step is always vadi makeup. It has to get into the vadi makeup. It's got to get into the dictionary. It's got to get into the glossary of geology. It's got to get into the things that the people who share the thought collective believe are true. And the problem with Jerry Coyne is his... What he his his body makeup is completely different from mine. His, mm. his is the standard neo Darwinism, and mine is, mine is, is is against you know something else. Mm. Anyway, but and here's the big point that the, the sociologists make. The, to me, Fleck is the only true sociology of science. Even Kuhn Kuhn said what he, that he just <laughs> he said that he read Fleck for he had it out for years, mm. and he gave one great example in chemistry, but the concepts are. Are basically flex. Okay, so but flex says the body make them isn't enough to become a scientific fact. It must be there, but it's not enough. The only way a scientific fact is accepted as a fact 
is when it fits in to the zeitgeist, the Weltanschauung, the capitalist system in this case. Hmm. So it's the whole Darwin business is so tied to the culture at large, and when the science is fighting the culture at large, no way does it get accepted. That, and that, I think that's the answer. Hmm. The Darwinism with Andrew Carnegie and uh, uh, Chase Bank and the Rockefellers and the Roosevelt's hmm. and the, the oligarchs and the big power is much more, th that is the perverted Darwinism, mm -hmm. is much more in tune to the cultural milieu at the time, especially when they're building all the railroads and all that. Well, that seems to me to be then good news for um, a stronger truth in evolution because that system seems to be really failing and falling apart. Exactly. So, um, exactly. you know, and there's a lot of uh, movement toward collectivity now in a way. There is an awareness of, see, but I, I don't consider symbiosis like cooperation, I consider cooperation right. social, but, the, but you're right. It, it, is the environment uh, more amenable to interaction to local products and all that stuff relative to the kind of uh, spirit of the times that you had in, in you know when, when neo-darwinism would speak but when it fits in with the bigger view that's when you have everybody jumping on the bandwagon right. so that and when it's the science against the cultural milieu you know the cultural milieu is going to work <laughs> So is that and that that's the answer to your question? Yeah. yeah. So that so there's uh, I mean it it's really interesting that the whole sort of cult and culture of what it means to be an individual really seems to me to be changing right now. And there are all sorts of as you say, it's a cultural new these pressures, um, whether it's uh, this idea of a cult of personality or celebrity. I mean, anybody can be a celebrity now by going on YouTube. Everybody's looking into each other's lives through Facebook, through social profiling. So everybody has this sort of uh, voyeuristic celebrity aspect to them now. Um, you have the Occupy movement that's going on now, which was this almost spontaneous, yeah, this almost spontaneous thing where all these people just rose up and came together and against this idea of capitalism, which was the former cultural movement. So if you have um, all that happening, it seems to me that the idea of what it means to be an individual is changing, and that is very deeply related to ideas of symbiosis, symbiogenesis. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, one thing, there's only one, the unit of life that is the minimal system that shows 100% of the properties of life is a bacterial cell, and you can't, study it because it's one by itself you have to have a large number of them before you can see them or test their behavior mm -hmm. so that the, I would say that the biggest difference between their sense that the neo-Darwinist hegemony that hegemony that has ran, run all the money for evolution and the things that we are saying is that uh, the individual is exactly not that the individual is complex and composite the individual all the individuals you can see with your unaided eye all of them, without exception, are basically walking communities. They're groups. They're very integrated, some more integrated than others, but really integrated. And so the whole concept of individual is platonic. It's left over from Plato's ideas and you know, platonic. Views. So do you have an idea then of, uh, of a bacterium 
sort of switching back and forth from being an entity and a process because it seems that... Oh, all life is process. Yeah. All life is process all the time. It, yes, you can identify an entity, but, I mean, it, it gets you to the, the basic concept of autopoiesis, which viruses don't have. And all cells have them. All cells are autopoietic entities. Some of them, for example, the Borrelia we were talking about and the, and the syphilispirochete, have four-fifths of the genes coming from you, the one-fifth relative to their very close relatives that are living in, in uh, you know, not in a body, but in a culture medium. So, yes, the, the, the individuality is relative. And I've got a chapter called that, mm-hmm. Relative Individuality. It's not, we think of it as something fixed and clear because we as mammals, first of all, we don't have larval stages, which is a shame. That's why we can't understand <laughs> Don Williamson. We just don't have them. We also have to always stay wet on the inside. You can't have any desiccation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all. The problem of these people, well, I like to say that they're all these people that have dominated the evolution of money, almost none are botanists. They're all basically coming in through zoology and they're coming in through a human interest and they're playing with one fifth of the deck. They're just they're playing games with one thing. They are they are automatically excluding the really interesting to me, interesting <laughs> biological modes of life by only playing for or and even deeper, deeper. I think, from my perspective, is that they're excluding their ability to, uh, or they're distancing themselves from being able to even consider things uh, as close to objectivity as possible. Because no, if you're right. studying animals yep. and you're studying something that's very much like human being, the human being, the condition that you're in, and you want to study human beings as well. The evidence is going to become worse and worse as you oh, get to that I can level. Tell you, I can tell you Sorry. probably quantitatively that uh, the closer you get to humans in your studies of primate human, you know, anthro, what are they called? Anthropoid, apes, and so on. The closer you get to medical significance or humans, the more distorted, the more money. I mean, is this there's just this complete it's it's like the Texas view of the world you know everything's Texas <laughs> right, right. it's it, it, and it and this it I mean you could call it corruption you could call it inability to be objective at all you know whatever you want to call it but it's so obvious especially when there's money flow or there's practical mm. consequences of what you're doing so that you, that's why cosmology is great I mean Nobody really cares very much because it doesn't have any immediate practical mm. significance. <laughs> Whereas I, I can I, I well, I like to say maybe you, well, that medical science is a an oxymoron. It's hmm. an oxymoron, like military intelligence. It's an oxymoron, right? <laughs> they, you cannot be. There are certainly. Physicians, trained physicians like Leidy, who made great contributions, but not as physicians. They made it because they become scientists. <laughs> and I don't think you can be. The Hippocratic Oath says, I will honor the man who taught me these arts and will teach them to his son. Loyalty to the man before <laughs> do no harm. I mean, it comes before do no harm. <laughs> so you, you just, the, the, it's intrinsic. The activity, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to acquire property, and it's it's a shame because I, all the people aren't like that, but most of them are. I worked really hard to find a doctor who was capable of saying, "I don't know," 
to me very often. Have you often. ever found him? Oh, yeah. He's great. Good. You got a good doctor. Yeah, and he's, he's very... He's San Francisco. Yeah, and he will also... He's very honest. He will also say things like, well, you know, we can go down the long, expensive, and ultimately probably ineffective path of uh, finding out what's causing this problem, or you can just wait and see if it goes yeah, away. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I have a doctor like that, but she wanted to be a botanist. She couldn't afford it. <laughs> well, he's, he's an anthroposophical doctor, so... Yeah. But, uh... So, so all that said, then I wonder, you know, I, I've heard you say that the one thing that we need to realize, I'm not quoting you directly, but the one thing we need to realize is that there's never a single explanation or a single cause. Well, right? you, could all, you can never so, do only one thing. So I'm wondering then, are there other models of evolution aside from symbiogenesis that are exciting to you? Or oh, that, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, that aspect of evolution... That is, where do you get big, important, new innovation? Mm. That's the issue. Because uh, I'm telling you, the natural selection and the population expansion, those are things that are uh, right. uh, they're just universal. And what's ironic is that the real change in mammal species is coming from chromosomal phenomena. Well, you know, you have Down syndrome, the, the you know, the... You know, Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's just a fragment of a chromosome error. You know, mm -hmm. it can be an extra fragment or translocated fragment. So we know that very small changes in the chromosomes can have huge, mostly lethal actually, because animals, mammals are obligate diploids. They can only take two chromosomes at once. Mm -hmm. so plants are much more open to changes. But anyway... It's chromosome phenomenology about which we know something. And that whole idea is not anywhere in the speciation literature. Hmm. This guy, Coyne, writes a 700-page speci speciation book, <laughs> and it's all Drosophila genes, because he's assuming it's genes, mm -hmm. and, and human evolution. Mm -hmm. and, which is, and, that's the fact that he uses Drosophila, when I'm talking to you, that makes me laugh, because you've written so much about the separation of distinct Drosophila based on uh, the symbionts that they had. Yeah, well, that's, yeah. that's I've recently got a, a, a letter that's wonderful, and finally the publication of a guy who has documented the old speciation cages of, of uh, Dobzhansky in the field for Drosophila of pseudo-obscura, and he's very happy to... I mean, he was brought up a neo-Darwinist, mm -hmm. and he's... I don't care. He's at the University of Vienna. But I mean, finally, this, he wrote me a long time ago, but he actually sent me a published paper. They finally got it through, published paper, in the Rosophila literature. But I'm saying that those people that talk about speciation, they're talking about genetic differences. It turns out that there's more genetic differences. I mean, at the gene sequence DNA level, there are more genetic differences between two Bushmen than there are between anyone else in the whole world. <laughs> Between any two, you pick, you pick Scandinavians <laughs> and, and Tierra del Fuegans, and there's, there are differences. And that these differences are on the individual level, and that they do not accumulate and change species at all. <laughs> so I'm not denying that there are genetic differ differences. I'm just saying the mutational level genetic differences are not at all at the basis of speciation, whereas chromosomal phenomena like, like the karyotypic changes are. And the karyotypic changes are fantastic. And it's mammalian. And yet that, that literature has been... We, we, there's a man called Max King who wrote a fantastic book on speciations, speciation in animals mostly, 
and chromosomes. Well, he really did study it. And Robin brought, his, brought him to my attention because he was Australian. And that's because a guy called M.J.D. White in the 1940s or something went to Australia. He was not upper-class English, but he wanted to be. And he, he wrote about the karyotypic phenomenon that, that believe that all the chromosomes behave the same at once, is believing in miracles, and we scientists don't believe in miracles, and he squashed the whole field. Okay? This guy, Max King, a much younger man, was a postdoc and was a student of this in this group. At least they were interested in chromosomes and animal speciation. He wrote this brilliant book, and I, we couldn't find him. We couldn't find him. I got Reg Morrison to go look for him. Finally found him. Absolutely brilliant guy. He did wrote, write me an answer. He said he quit all of science. He's got a sheep farm, and he just can't answer because he has not kept up with the literature. It was fascinating while he did. And I think that's a sign of it because what what do you do if you if, if everyone he did what he, he said what he could and he finished what he could but it, it's just not people weren't thinking the way he was and so he, I mean I don't know what the reason is maybe you know maybe he has personal reasons but I know it's just a terrible shame because he know more about hmm. the speciation of animals and their and their and 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 the one of the key things about working out the speciation for mammals is to do zoogeography. It's to it's to check it's to plot on maps the chromosomes and you and this is totally successful. <laughs> but you know, Robin's got her papers rejected all the time. <laughs> Just like Williamson. And I, when I said Williamson wrote today I get this letter. Mike my, he had suggested that I would be one of the reviewers, which they probably didn't like, but they didn't get just, that far. Just for people who are listening, Don Williamson, um, just give a very brief... <laughs> Don Williamson noted something that the naturalist noticed many years ago, that many animals like caterpillars to moths and what are the larvae to people now? Uh, I know. Um, maggots to flies have dramatic changes in every aspect of their body during their development. Those are, the younger forms are called, the first forms, the earlier forms, are called larvae. And Williamson claimed that there are two genetic systems, one for the larva and one for the adult, and they're in the same egg, and that they are, they are the developmental patterns for the young one first and then turns off. Every step on his hypothesis is verified. It's the breeding between two different species to produce. Well, it wasn't even, yeah, that's the original situation, yeah. but now there are two genomes right. in the cells. An egg has two, in other words, animals have multiple animal ancestors, the ones that have right. these, what they call metabolism, that is dramatic changes in form. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this guy is 90 years old. He sent me a letter you can calculate how long ago. I'm 68 years old. I'm from a short-lived family, and I'm on a straight-line course for posthumous recognition. <laughs> and he, he, sh he just showed me how he's, everything he was doing was being rejected all the time. Today, he's 90 years old, and I got up, and he's still kicking in. He's had a stroke because he was collecting eggs by slipping on the rocks. It's a shame. But anyway, I got this letter saying, my origin of chordate larva paper has been summarily rejected. Here are the reviewers. And they just sound like Jerry Coyne. I mean, and I wrote back immediately. And I said, Don, 
your paper, this paper especially, will never be accepted by zoologists. You have to go way beyond zoologists to, to get people to look at it who can read it, uh, and it, you have to make it so that they can read it. Anyway, anyway, and I'm and I'm glad to help you, and that's what I want to do. But it's true. It's like the neo Darwinists are never going to accept anything I do. They've stopped all my money. I mean, they just they, they, they can't. It's it's like I don't want to make in, in, you know invidious comparisons, but it's dealing with the other, the foreigner, mm-hmm. and, and and the same thing that causes racial and religious uh, dissension. It's the same tribalism. That's everywhere in human activity. So something that's also very different, I think, about you and uh, not all neo-Darwinists, um, and I think some of them are really well-spoken, thoughtful, so I don't want to just sweep them all, you know. Um, but you, okay, so you wrote a book of short stories, Luminous Fish, and you have another book, um, Slant of Truth, which is now called Dazzle Gradually, both take their titles. Well, no, actually, it's, it, it's a lot of new essays in it, but oh, okay. it is the descendant. Yeah, <laughs> so. and they, they both take their titles from Emily Dickinson. You live literally in Emily Dickinson's backyard. Oh, well, the, the house here has a sign saying this is natu- National Historical Property of Emily Dickinson. <laughs> so, and you've also, uh, you're fond of quoting uh, her, and you're fond of quoting other literary figures. And it seems to me that that has somehow uh, given you a way to also step back and consider things in a different way. And I'm wondering where that literary sensibility and the scientific uh, mind that you have meet. And Well, I didn't want to be, deal with people. I just wanted to read from the time I could remember <laughs> that I could read. It's true. It's a way of escaping mm. the social gossip and the nonsense that's going around you all the time. And I still get my great pleasures out of reading. Um, but with respect to Emily Dickinson, I'm glad you brought it up because this interview is getting going to be over. <laughs> and I want to tell you my new project. Okay. Emily, in her poem, What Mystery Pervades a Well, that water stands so far, a neighbor in another, from another world residing in a jar whose limits none have never seen but just its lid of glass like looking every time you please in Abyss's face. I will now miss some stanzas. The last stanza is, For nature is a stranger yet, the ones who sight her most, like us now, (laughs) have not passed her haunted house nor simplified her ghost. To pity those who know her not is helped by the regret that those who know her know her less the nearer her they get. (laughs) That's why this book... (laughs) Which I have, I I think it's going to go really well. The book is called "For Nature Is a Stranger Yet," which is what I feel after spending all my life in nature. For nature is a stranger yet, decoding Emily Dickinson. Why? Because of Hans Werner Luscher. Ever heard of? Him? Mm. Of course not. <laughs> of course not. He died in 1991 or something like that. He was a Swiss who spent his entire life, he started to translate Emily Dickinson into German because he, he became very, he lived in this, well, he lived in Canada, he lived in an English-speaking country. He was very, very good in English. He was a photographer. He was a wild, took people up the mountains, a Swiss mountaineer, a tourist. He was 
always writing articles to go back to the Zurich or wherever he was from. Basel, no, he's a Basler, completely Basler. So he, but he became very good in both languages. So he started in the Los Angeles Public Library, he had no money, uh, reading Emily Dickinson said, this poetry is so good, it needs to be made into German. And in the end, when he died, not a single poem had been published in German that he had done. Mm-hmm. But he had, he spent uh, 40 years or something like that, every night working on it, and he discovered her secret code. <laughs> it's totally sexual. Okay. It, this whole story is in this book. But what is fascinating is that Hans Lischer does have, he has stuff that's clearly wrong in his analysis. <laughs> and of course, I only have the part of his analysis that was collected to show it to a publisher, because there literally are 40 boxes <laughs> of stuff. But my colleague and friend who worked with Dick Wilkie, you know who Dick Wilkie is, don't you? Well, he's, the, 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 um, he's my closest colleague in the geosciences <laughs> department. He did the historical atlas of Massachusetts, <laughs> uh, geographical distribution of stuff. And a woman who worked for him on this project, who had a master's degree in English and another master's degree in, what is she at? Maybe education, I don't know, but she's great. Her name is Ruth Owen Jones, published in Emily Dickinson's Studies. It's called Neighbor, something, neighbor, friend, bride, or husband. Mm-hmm. She published her very sober analysis. I mean, I met, I met her at a party for Dick Wilkie's gorgeous photographs because he, she, she worked with him. And she really knows, and, and I know I've been looking at it carefully for a long time, she really knows who the master figure was. You know, the ma- he, she wrote three letters to the mm-hmm. master figure and all that. But the combination of Lusher's Literary analysis, and and uh, and Ruth Owen Jones's published papers in Dickinson Studies that Richard, what's his name? No, William Smith Clark was the master figure. It's correct. It's correct because there's so much evidence. Ruth has been working on it for years. I mean, the evidence doesn't come from me; it comes from Ruth. So my little book is decoding Emily Dickinson. I'm putting down the pieces, and when you you learn as the reader what happened to me as I learned what was happening. I feel that it's not only a mystery story, it's solved, mm-hmm. mostly because of the gorgeous scholarship of my colleague Ruth Owen Johns. Isn't that wild? Yeah, I'm excited for it. Yeah, it's exciting. <laughs> it's a totally new project for you, Oh, too. yeah, but it, and how did I do it? I, <laughs> I was got, it's, But I, I did it on this, the taping, and I did it on an old-fashioned tape, tape, tape machine. I talked into it. I talked into the story, right. and I'm now on the fourth. You know, it's got it's got a lot of work. To you do. know, Emily Dickinson is very special to me too because my my mother used to read me Emily Dickinson poems when I was a kid. We had this book, "I'm Nobody, Who Are You?" Right, yeah, that's what yeah. it was called. But it had these beautiful paintings in it, and she would show me the paintings and read the poems to me. So, do you have that book still? Um, it's probably in stores somewhere, but I don't. I mean, know. you don't know enough to go get a copy of it. No. But I, I mean, I'm sure it must it's, be selected. It's called "On Nobody Who Are You," so if you want, if, yeah. you can probably find it online. But we'll see. it's it's a great book, 
has beautiful pictures. Oh, you know, but too, there's a pair of us don't tell, oh, that advertise don't know. Don't, um, oh, wait, wait. How? Let me just, let me close this out. Okay, oh, close it. Yeah, no. Um, <laughs> so thank you, Lynn Margulis, for uh, having this discussion with me. And I just want to say it's, uh, I personally, it's been, it's a pleasure to know you and to have you in my life. But I think also without even, uh, doing anything other than what you love and what you care about, you're making a contribution to everybody's lives. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. I think that you're one of my favorite students. Take science, five science courses, and on a trajectory toward creative writing without any of the prerequisites. It's very impressive. So feeling is mutual. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>